It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday. Who wants to talk sports? Heading to the great sports weekend, we do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host John Riley in our San Diego studios. We welcome you to our weekly podcast. John, what an amazing weekend we have ahead of us. Wildcard weekend in the NFL. Ton of news and notes about football coaches. We got baseball free agent signings and controversy off the field. Lots to cover. Yeah, well, wildcard Car weekend is always one of the best weekends of, of the whole NFL season, so I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. Okay, pick a game. Let's get started because we're going to preview all of them on this wild card weekend. couple on Saturday, a bunch on Sunday, and then a wild card Monday night game. Go ahead, start. Okay, so tell me what you think about the Chargers, you know, flying to Florida, going to Jacksonville on the road, playing a, you know, a really up-and-coming Jaguars team. I'll use the word shootout because I think that's the way to describe what's probably the most balanced game that we're going to see on the weekend. You got the quarterbacks, Justin Herbert and Trevor Lawrence. You've got explosive wide receivers. You got quality tight ends. You got a very good Jacksonville defense. You have a not so good Charger defense. Uh, you got tremendous field goal kicking from the Bolts. I think this game is a pick em. This is as close as you can get. Now, that being said, I'm going to throw some numbers at you here. Then you can stand up and shout the way you want. (laughs) Justin Herbert, superstar. Uh, There's no doubt. Uh, Justin Herbert has thrown for 4,700-plus yards, 25 touchdowns, has taken 38 sacks this season. Uh, His quarterback rating, he's dragged it up after a a strange drop in midseason. His quarterback rating is now at 95 Austin Eckler, do everything. 1,637 all-purpose yards, run and catch. He's had 311 touches of the football this season. Spectacular. The underrated guy is is Josh Palmer. He's got 72 receptions, and they may need him in this Saturday afternoon game. When they're on the field, there's no doubt that uh, Kareem Allen, Mike Williams are really dangerous. A combined 121 receptions this season. Mike Williams has not practiced at all this week because of the bruise to the lower back. Now they got another day. They travel Friday. They play Saturday night. Maybe that will be enough time for him uh, to recover. But Josh Palmer becomes a real insurance policy there. I don't like the Bolts' defense. I don't care what they did at the end of the season. John, it was against a bunch of substandard teams. And then last week, in the final game of the season, when they played all their veterans, they gave up 432 yards to Denver, the worst offense in the league. I don't like the fact that the Charger defense is giving up 5.4 yards per carry, 141 yards per game rushing, and their third down statistics, 43% completion rate. That's not real good. Hidden statistic, field goal kickers, and they've been spectacular. Nobody in the league is talking about what the Charger field goal kickers have done. 31 of 33 this season and 31 of 32 inside the 50-yard line. That's a lot of quality play. Mm -hmm. You look at some of the other kickers, other teams around the league, those numbers don't match. Jacksonville. Trevor Lawrence, what great growth the second year, had a very rugged first year, the whole Urban Meyer mess. Doug Peterson and he have 
really come up with a chemistry that works, and he has input into Peterson's uh, offensive game plan. Trevor Lawrence's numbers are almost even-steven uh, with Justin Herbert. Trevor Lawrence on the season, 4,100 yards, 25 touchdowns. Heavy-duty running back in Travis Etienne, his Clemson teammate, 1,125 yards. I bet you could not name any wide receiver in Jacksonville. Nope. Heck, I could go on a street corner, and I don't think anybody <laughs> would know who the Jacksonville wide receivers are. Uh, Zay Jones and Christian Kirk, between them, 171 receptions. That's pretty impressive. One guy was a free agent, came from Arizona. The other guy was a street free agent that's been all over the league in Zay Jones. And their tight end, Evan Ingram, a street free agent, has got 73 receptions. And their defense, they're led by first-round draft pick Trayvon Walker's had a really good season. Uh, draft pick two years ago, Josh Allen's had a really good season. They just play tough, and they, they begrudge you any yards or any first downs you get. Uh, the Chargers have won four or five. They're feeling good. But who do they beat? The Chargers, John, have one win against a team with a winning record. And that's when they took apart Miami about a month ago. They haven't beaten anybody else with a winning record. Jacksonville's feeling pretty good. They've won five straight. They've won six of their last seven. And unlike the Chargers, the Cowboys have beaten Dak Prescott in Dallas. They have beaten... Lamar Jackson, when he was healthy in Baltimore, and they beat the Chargers early in the season. They beat the Chargers' brains out early in the season. So those are the numbers. Those are the storylines. Chargers-Jacksonville. I think the numbers are almost even, Stephen. I do think Jacksonville is a much more physical team, and this sucker is being played on the eastern seaboard in Jacksonville, where suddenly everybody, the color of the day in the city of Jacksonville, is teal. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's going to be a good game. Uh, I would hope it's not one and done for the Chargers, because if it is, then I think it's a disappointment of a season. But going to be fun watching the two kid quarterbacks. And I just gave you the statistics are almost almost even, Stephen. Okay, that's from my street corner. On your street corner, what are you saying? I mean, I I like this matchup. I like the two quarterbacks. I think it's going to be fun to watch them. You're talking about the kickers. Like, was it Dicker the kicker, right? I mean, that guy has been tremendous this year. Yeah. But just think of all the disappointment the Chargers have had when Nate Kading was the kicker and how many games they choked in the playoffs. Are we going to have another choke job again this year? We'll find out. But this is going to be one of the better games this weekend. I think it's the most balanced game. I think it's a, it's a pick em game. My heart says Justin Herbert because I just think that kid is a gamer and that kid is a winner. My concern came in the, in the Friday press briefing uh, from the coach. And when Brandon Staley started to talk about Jacksonville, he talked about Doug Peterson's team dictate tempo. Doug Peterson's team always ahead of the chains. Doug Peterson's team, we got to get that quarterback off his mark. Uh, Doug Peterson's team, we got to put him in third and long and put them behind the chains. So he's looked at the video, and he's seen, I think, how dynamic and how physical and how tough the Jaguars are. It's going to be a really hard game. There's a lot of conversation, John, about the Bolts don't have very much experience. Well, a correction. That's why they put erasers on pencils. A correction. (laughs) Justin Herbert's played in a lot of big games in his career. Some in the NFL, and he's won. And a whole pile when he played at Oregon. He played in a lot of big bowl games against big-time teams. So I don't think he gets rattled with the enormity of the first playoff game. And even though there's, there's a bunch of other guys that haven't been in the playoffs, they do have a whole pile of veterans here 
uh, led by their center. Obviously, some of those guys on defense. So um, I, I don't think first-time playoff for this group is a big thing because a quarterback doesn't get freaked out at all. Yeah, it's it's going to come down to the Chargers' defense. You mean they, they were giving up so many yards on rushing? Is is the, are the Jaguars just going to run over them, kind of the way that Jacoby you know did with the Raiders? So this is this is going to be a tough game for LA to win on the road, three time zones away. Okay, pick them. I'm picking the Bolts. Okay, I'm going to go Jaguars. You're wearing teal. I'm wearing teal. Uh, you might not be here next week for the podcast. <laughs> okay, let's go to the other Saturday game because this one is this one's kind of intriguing. Yeah, I mean the the Niners and Brock Purdy to me is one of the best stories of the season. I'm fired up for them. This is my childhood team in San Francisco, and Seattle kind of snuck in through the back door to get into the playoffs. So this could be this could be interesting. Do you have any rain gear? Do you have boots, galoshes, umbrellas? <laughs> you have a wetsuit? Mm-hmm. Games are being played in San Francisco, pal. What's the weather in San Francisco been like, and what's it going to be like going forward? It's an atmospheric river out there. I yeah. mean, they're getting pummeled with rain. Yeah, they're talking rain and wind for the game on Saturday. Wow. That's not good. Uh, so maybe the weatherman carries bigger clout than anybody else. Let's talk about uh, the 49ers. They have won 10 in a row, John. How how unbelievably impressive is that? You look at San Francisco, 365 yards a game on offense. They're giving up only 300. They just make it so hard on you to move the fall, ball to get drives going, to get first downs. It's like you're in lifetime third and long when you play against San Francisco's uh, defense. Brock Purdy, efficient, doesn't make a lot of mistakes, throws some touchdown passes, hands the ball off to Christian McCaffrey the rest of the time. His quarterback rating, 107. Wow. 107 for Mr. Itinerant, right? <laughs> the last guy taken in the draft with a 107 quarterback rating. How how unbelievable is that? Uh, and, of course, their defense. We've talked extensively all season long. They just beat you up. They wear you out. They make it so tough for you to move the ball consistently, series by series. Defense, in addition to giving up only 300 yards per game when everybody's moving the football, 49er defense, 44 sacks, 30 takeaways. And Christian McCaffrey, we've all talked about Austin Eckler and his diversity with the Chargers. Christian McCaffrey, 1,880 all-purpose yards, run and catch. That's a staggering statistic. Now, in terms of Seattle, they I'm not going to say they backed in, but they did lose five of their last eight games. They were not playing as well. Uh, people, I think, have caught up a little bit to Geno Smith. Uh, the young running back, uh, Kenneth Walker, the kid out of Michigan State, he's had a, a, an 1,100-yard rushing season. It's been caught, kind of lost in the equation. they got two really good wide receivers, obviously, in the outspoken DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. The Lockett's coming off thumb surgery uh, between them, 171 receptions on the season. But at the end of the day, there's just too much San Francisco. Pick your poison. Who you are going to defend? McCaffrey? Debo Samuel? <laughs> Aok? The other wide receiver from BYU or the tight end, George Kittle. And by the way, Kenneth Walker is going to run. And Geno Smith's, you know, he's he's a one-man gang in Seattle. Uh, I, I just don't know how Seattle defends all the weapons that San Francisco has. And if it, if, if it is indeed heavy rain and if it is blowing sideways with the wind, that means you've got to run the ball. 
and McCaffrey is pretty doggone good on on that turf. So I just think there's way too much San Francisco, not enough for Seattle. So I'm picking Kyle Shanahan to just take this thing and drive him to a wild card victory. It's, I think it's going to be a hard day for Pete Carroll Seahawks. Yeah, I agree with you. And you know, we talked about McCaffrey, how he's that dual threat like Roger Craig was in the 1980s. I mean, what a great player. It's a shame that um, our local you know, Aztec Rashad Penny couldn't be playing in this game. Uh, that would have made Seattle a lot better, I think, on the field. Uh, but this is going to be a lot of fun. I remember last year in the NFC Championship, it was the Niners in Green Bay in the snow. So now we're going to be doing a different kind of weather in the rain, but it'll be a fun game to watch. Where's your raincoat? Where's your umbrella? Where are your galoshes? There you go. On we go. Let's go to Sunday. Uh, and let's get started here with a big game in the AFC, but I don't know how big a game it's really going to be. Yeah, I, I, the, the news is breaking. It's, Miami's going to be in a lot of trouble here. Yeah, and I'm not talking just about weather, uh, but for them to have to go back to Buffalo again, and now for them to go back to Buffalo without Tua at quarterback, uh, I think he's done for whatever's left in the postseason yeah. because it, he's still in a concussion protocol for this third straight week. Uh, their defense isn't playing well. Now they've lost their tough guy running back, uh, Raheem Mostert. He's out with a thumbs injury. And you got Buffalo, and you got Josh Allen, and you got all that firepower, and you got that defense. I mean, it, to me, it's a real rugged combination. Buffalo's averaging 397 yards per game. Think about that. In the last couple of weeks, they haven't been dynamic offensively, and they've turned it over, and yet they're averaging 397. Uh, Buffalo's only given up 319. They're pretty tough uh, to move the football against. Uh, defense, third down conversion. conversion rate from the guys got it on third down against Buffalo's defense. How tough is that? And they got 40 quarterback sacks. In Miami, no Tua, running back dinged up, just not the same offense. Miami skids into this thing having lost five of their last six. Uh, Only word I can use to describe what's probably going to happen Sunday on the Niagara Frontier is blowout. Yeah. I mean, and on top of it all, um, the Bills are America's team, right? I mean, so the whole nation is going to be rooting for them to win. Uh, Miami has no shot. Okay. On we go. Really interesting NFC game. The records of the two teams don't show how dangerous this could be. But you got Minnesota and you got the Giants. Let's talk about the Vikings. Kevin O'Connell has has drawn X's and O's to make this a very dangerous offense. Kevin O'Connell does not have much defense. This kind of looks like the old Chargers, the Dan Fouts era. We're going up and down the field. We're going to score a lot of points, and we hope our defense can at least stop them one time so we can (laughs) win. Uh, Minnesota, 361 yards per game offensively. That is so impressive what Kirk Cousins is doing defensively. 388 yards per game, John. Worst defense of any team that is playing on wild card weekend. 388. So it puts just enormous pressure on Kirk Cousins to be explosive. Uh, Cousins, phenomenal year. 4,547 yards, 29 touchdowns, but 17 turnovers, but 48 sacks. So that's kind of a dangerous offense. He may make plays down the field. He also may get killed trying to make plays and turn the football over. Justin Jefferson, the best receiver in the league that nobody's talking about, 128 catches this year. He's averaging 14 yards per catch. And Dalvin Cook's got 1,100 yards rushing. And running the football in Minnesota is almost an afterthought. In terms of the Giants, you know, I told you, 
might have been the end of October. Now, don't adjust your TV screen. There's nothing wrong with your eyesight. The Giants were 7-2. and two. Mm. Well, the Giants are 2-5-1 and one, since I told you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've gone in the wrong direction. One-man gang, Daniel Jones, very effective quarterback, throwing, scrambling, running for his life. I thought he was going to end up in the hospital. He's taken so many hits, and he's had to move the pocket. 3,900 all-purpose yards. So they got him. They got Saquon Barkley. They got a bunch of no-names at wide receiver. I just think Minnesota's got too much firepower. This sucker is up in the Twin Cities. And you got a Giants team that I think has kind of reached the end of the road. Nice first half of the season. But two wins in the last eight games, that's not playoff football. Yeah, I don't know what to make of the Giants. I've been sort of confused by them. You know, I don't know a lot you know, about Daniel Jones. I mean, you're saying he's having a great year, but he just seems like he's one of those quarterbacks that you know he could get blown out at any time. Now, Minnesota, obviously, we love what McConnell is doing there, our local guy. But it seems like the Vikings either win big or or they just, you know, or they, excuse me, they win, they squeak by with a win or they get blown out. It's one or the other. So, yeah, if that defense isn't working, it could be trouble. Yeah, 388 yards per game. I haven't seen anybody in the playoffs with those kind of lousy defensive numbers. On we go. Let's talk about the team that was in a Super Bowl last season. You got Cincinnati, and they're home. And they're going to play Baltimore for the second week in a row after last weekend's season-ending game. This could be really ugly. This could be lopsided. I think the Bengals are the real deal. This is not a one-stop wonder, them doing what they did last year to get the Super Bowl. Uh, They have won eight in a row. You know, they were one and two out of the gate back in September. We were looking at each other and saying, something's not right. Well, their offensive line wasn't good. They got better as they went on. They've won 10 of their last 11. And the big problem here for Baltimore is, A, Joe Burrow is doing it, and B, they don't have Lamar Jackson. He has not played. He's got a bone bruise in his knee, and it's, in his knee, and it's not healed. And so they're going with their second-string quarterback, Trace McSorley, who's got an ailing shoulder. And if he can't hold up, they're going to go to a street-free agent, Anthony Brown, who had to play last week and was competitive, but he's not an established star NFL quarterback. And Joe Burrow... 4,500 yards throwing the football, 35 touchdowns. And here's the stat. Third down plays, Cincinnati, they convert 46% of the third down snaps. And they've got the wide receivers, obviously, Jamar Chase and the kid that's really developed into a star and T. Higgins. Between them, 161 receptions. No Lamar Jackson. Their running backs have been hurt. Their defensive front has had injuries in Baltimore. But... It's John Harbaugh's team, and that means they're going to punch you in the mouth. Baltimore does have 48 sacks and does have 25 takeaways, but the defense can't play 60 minutes on the field. So I think this is this is going to be a bad end to what's really been a bad second half of the season in Baltimore because they got so many guys hurt. And Joe Burrow, smoking cigars, real deal. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting to watch them play so effectively. Yeah, Baltimore has no shot without Jackson, uh, but... You're talking about what they won eight in a row, Cincinnati, and the Niners have won ten in a row. Imagine if we get another Niners Bengals, <laughs> you know, Super Bowl matchup. They've already faced each other twice. This could be a third time. Don't don't be looking down the road. The only game that counts is the one that's going to be played Saturday. Okay. The one that's going to be played Sunday. All right, let's talk about the Monday night game, the last game on the wild card weekend. Uh, to me, I'll use this word: mystery. 
I don't I don't know what we're getting in this game when you got Tampa and you got Dallas. And yes, you got marquee names, Dak Prescott and Tom Brady, but do you have enough? Dallas did not finish impressively. They're just two and two uh, at the end of the season. Uh, Dak Prescott's turned the football over more this year than he ever has in his entire career. Uh, Cowboys are not running the ball like they did consistently the first half of the season, and their wide receivers have good games and they have bad games. Prescott's got 23 touchdowns, but he's got 16 turnovers. However, Cowboy defense, they'll stone you. League-high 54 sacks, 33 takeaways. So they're kind of living off their defense. So that's what Dallas has coming to the line of scrimmage. And in Tampa Bay, Tom Brady's thrown for almost 4,700 yards, 25 touchdowns. His top two wide receivers, Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, between them, 181 receptions. That's amazing. Another statistic. He's thrown the ball 733 times. He's taken only 22 sacks. He gets the ball out of there quick, but he has to get it out of there quick. But it's it's kind of like a one-arm paper hanger. They just don't have anything around him. Offensive front is a problem. No running game at all. So he's just chucking and ducking uh, the entire way. Tampa Bay went 3-4 and four down the stretch. This is a mystery game because Dallas is not playing like Dallas did. And Brady's dragging that team, kicking and screaming, into the wild card weekend just on the strength of his right arm. So who do you think is going to win? Well, this is kind of a crazy one. I mean, Tampa has a sub-500 record, right? And meanwhile, the Dallas Cowboys always seem to choke in the playoffs lately. I mean, imagine the Dallas fans would be just flabbergasted if they lost this game, especially at home. It's going to be in Dallas, right? So I'm going to I'm going to call the game for the Cowboys, but I'm going to be rooting for Brady just to knock them off. Yeah. It's going to be fun. There's no doubt about it. This is the strangest game of everything in the first round. The Charger-Jacksonville game, I think, is the most even Steven. So that's the preview a wild card weekend comes Saturday, comes Sunday, and Monday. John, before we move on to the next topic on the table, tell all of our people on our live stream and the Watcher podcast how they can subscribe to get all the alerts and what else is available to them, what we do during the week. Yeah, so you can subscribe um, on the YouTube channel. Just look up Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Uh, subscribe there. Click on the bell. You'll get the updates because we not only do this podcast every Thursday at 3, the live stream, but then we're releasing video clips throughout the week. So there's always new content on Lee Hacksaw Hamilton's video, uh, you know, YouTube video page. Um, you can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. Just go out there and sign up and and subscribe. And want to remind you, if you like sports, if you like my show, if you didn't like my show, I want you to check my website. It's all written every day, all fresh material, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Guarantee you, if you read it daily, aside from John and me, you'll be the smartest guy on the face <laughs> of the earth. Okay, let's talk about off the field because this was some 48 hours in the National Football League. Black Monday, they call it couple of more coaches got fired. There are now five guys gone, which means in addition, 55 to 75 assistant coaches lost their job too. I will start in Arizona, which right now looks like it's a mess. Uh, the general manager, Steve Keim, is gone. Cliff Kingsbury was jettisoned out of there Sunday night. Uh, Cardinals went 7-18 and 18 
over the last year and a half, despite having Kyler Murray as their starting quarterback. Uh, it's a franchise that's just in disarray. And and the black mark, I think, again, Cliff Kingsbury is bright light guy. But when people make adjustments to what he's doing, he was never able to counterattack. His end-of-season numbers as head coach uh, with the Arizona Cardinals, and prior to that in college, are just horrific. It's weird, though. He may be about to get another job. The New England Patriots on Thursday morning made contact with Kingsbury about possibly coming in as the offensive coordinator. So Cliff Kingsbury is gone as head coach of the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Lovey Smith got blown out after one year in Houston, 313-1. This comes a year after he got blown out at the University of Illinois. Arizona jettisoned him a year after they jettisoned David Curley, who had been there just one season. The Cardinals as a franchise are just an absolute mess. 11-38-1 with their last three head coaches. Hmm. And I'll tell you, this this points to the top of the hierarchy on the organizational chart, the owner, Michael Bidwell. He's the one that's made all these decisions. Do you know, John, they owe Kingsbury in Arizona an enormous amount of money. They owe him five years on his contract there. In Houston, that thing is a disaster. And I'm surprised that Nick Casario, a Patriot guy from the, from the Belichick organization, I'm surprised that Casario, the general manager, hasn't gotten fired because he's the one that's traded all these other players away. And there's an issue there with their ownership, and it might well be the McNair family have the wrong people advising them as to who should be hired. So Houston is a disaster. Houston doesn't have a quarterback on top of it, although they're going to wind up with a second pick in the draft. Uh, of course, earlier in the season, Indianapolis, and what a lot of people think was really unfair, fired Frank Reich. Jeff Saturday finished his head coach. They went 4-12-1. They lost 10 of their last 11. And if you find any quarterback on a street corner, please give them the phone number of the Indianapolis Colts. <laughs> That's not a good situation because you're dealing with a very impulsive owner in Jim Irsay. Uh, of course, prior to that, a couple of weeks ago, Denver hit the eject button on Nathan Hackett. Now, that, that to me could be a better job because you got Russell Wilson, or maybe some people would say you're stuck with Russell Wilson for four more years, but he played well the back half of the season. You're going to get all your injured players back. you got a number one ranked defense, and obviously you've got a lot of young guys at the skill positions, the running back, the wide receivers, all, all who were hurt. Denver might be a better job than anybody realizes. And, of course, Carolina has been in the hole since the early season firing of Matt Rule, thing there. you got an impulsive owner also in David Tepper, whose track record has not been very good. So those are the guys that have gotten bounced. Now, you mentioned Dallas Cowboys in the prior segment. If they don't win this playoff game, a lot of people in the Lone Star State think at the star, Jerry Jones will take Mike McCarthy out. Wow. That's, that's kind of an undercurrent theme, although I don't expect Dallas to to lose to Tampa Bay. But uh, they haven't been to the Super Bowl in a long, long time, despite all the resources they have and how good their drafts have been and how good their defense is. So put an asterisk under Matt Rule's name because we might be putting Dallas next to that next <laughs> week if the Cowboys don't win. Your reaction to the guys got taken out? 
Well, it's Cliff Kingsbury is the name that's interesting because I've heard all the stories about being a bright light, and it's it makes sense that the Patriots would come calling because don't they have a defensive coordinator running their offense? And, they had it, Matt Patricia. I don't think they will have effective next week. I'm led to believe that Robert Kraft met with Belichick at their season-ending evaluation in the middle of this week, and he told him, you will make changes on the offensive staff, mm-hmm. and I think that's going to happen. And I think Kingsbury's name just surfaced. The other name that's been mentioned a great deal is Bill O'Brien, a former coordinator in New England, former head coach Houston, currently on Nick Saban's staff, the University of Alabama. And he's an old school guy, but he's been very successful as a coordinator, not so much as a head coach. That's that's where we are there. Okay, so I mean, it's it's interesting to see how all of these um, these coaches, you know, they. There's certain coaches are like retreads. I mean, Lovey Smith has had how many goes at it now? Three, three. Well, two NFL jobs and the job in the Big Ten. Yeah. So I like to see fresh faces come in. I mean, guys that are certainly deserving. I mean, we could say, you know, Jeff Saturday maybe wasn't very deserving to get that job in Indianapolis. But I like to see new guys, you know, new career opportunities for some of the bright lights. Okay. Who's the hot candidates? Well, we've got a couple names at the top of the board that you're going to recognize. Hot candidates. Sean Payton, ex-New Orleans Saints Super Bowl coach, sat out this year to be a TV star, will coach next year. He will be interviewed face-to-face Tuesday by the Denver Broncos. He He is number one, I think, on a lot of people's wish lists. However, there's an issue with Sean Payton. He wants to bring his own player personnel people with him. So if you hire that coach, John, you're going to have to probably go into your front office and tell your general manager or your director of player personnel that we're taking away the decision power from your office. You're going to answer to Sean Payton. So that's a big issue as to whether Denver would be willing to give Sean Payton uh, all the keys. Now, Peyton's name is also being mentioned in Arizona. So connect the dots on this. No general manager. Steve Kime's gone. Kingsbury's gone. Now there's a position where Peyton could just move in with all of his people and replace the failed front office of the Arizona Cardinals. So keep an eye on that. Uh, There's an intangible story. Whoever hires Sean Payton owes compensation to the New Orleans Saints because Payton still had a multi-year contract. We don't know if if the compensation is going to be a number one pick. It might be a a mid-round pick. We just don't know what what the figure is. But whoever gets Payton has to pay a price to the New Orleans Saints. Uh, Second guy, Jim Harbaugh. I find this hard to believe because everybody in Ann Arbor just is in love with him for what he's done. I think his record's like 65 and 14 with the Wolverines, but he keeps casting glances back to the NFL like there's unfinished business from his days with the 49ers. Uh, he's had one interview. It was a Zoom interview early this past week with the Denver Broncos. Have not heard his name too many other places. There was a conversation with Carolina, but I don't, I don't think he likes what he sees or hears about David Tepper's Carolina Panthers. So maybe Harbaugh winds up in Denver if Peyton doesn't get the Denver job. Now, you talked about hot young guys. Uh, the flavor of the month, flavor of this year, Stange Steichen. Now, he was... 
quarterback coach, offensive coordinator, San Diego Chargers, L.A. Chargers, and then went to Philadelphia after the coaching change. And he is now the offensive coordinator of the Eagles. He's held in really high regard. He's going to get interviews. Frank Reich, who a lot of people think was treated really poorly in Indianapolis, uh, has interviewed in Carolina already. Led to believe he will interview with the Denver Broncos. Uh, Real bright light. And if he doesn't get a head coaching job, he's going to be somebody's offensive coordinator probably sooner uh, than later. And, you know, when you look at the other names, Dan Quinn, uh, I, I thought was pretty successful in Jacksonville, but uh, in terms of fixing the franchise, but didn't win. Went to Seattle as a coordinator for Pete Carroll, now in Dallas, very highly regarded, probably has earned the chance to get a, a second opportunity. Hot young guy, defensive coordinator, D'Amico Ryans. He's the guy that does the X's and O's. Where? San Francisco. Ah. And what do they do? They play defense. Uh, D'Amico Ryan's going to get probably multiple interviews. And uh, Raheem Morris, defensive coordinator of the Rams, uh, former head coach who failed, he's going to get a chance. Uh, In fact, he is interviewing with Denver on Tuesday night after Denver meets with Sean Payton on Tuesday morning. There's a whole laundry list of other guys. Interesting thing. I don't have an explanation for this. We'll put an asterisk next to top candidates. Do you know whose name is not being mentioned at all, John, for any of the head coaching jobs? Eric Bieniemy, Kansas City. Ah, two years in a row, he was the hot guy. Yeah, didn't didn't get an offer. He's still the right hand man doing a lot of creative stuff for Andy Reid. Nobody's interviewing him this year, so I don't know whether it's bad interviews or maybe they just think. He's a protege of Reed, and he's successful only because of Andy Reed's brilliance. But there is no Eric Bieniemy interview scheduled anywhere that I can find. Oh, that's that's a shame. I mean, because he is a, a terrific, you know, player, a great coach. I mean, his coaching record has been terrific. I mean, so it's a shame that he's not getting a look. Um, you know, you look at all these other guys like Harbaugh as an example. I hear people that in in Ann Arbor are worried about Harbaugh leaving because he just gets so much grief from the NCAA. Apparently, he took out one of uh, one of the recruits and just bought the kid a hamburger, and that is now violating some of the recruiting guidelines. And so, is Harbaugh maybe fed up with all of that, and that's why he wants to go back to the well, NFL? Well, he did that during the dark period when nobody was allowed to have contact with recruits during the COVID era. Mm-hmm. There was a window in which the NCAA shut down recruiting. He's not the only one. There have been other universities that have kind of done some things. Uh, that they, they, They've got disciplined along the way. I'll be fascinated to see. He's a Michigan man. I'd be absolutely stunned if he left. Uh, stunned is the word we're talking about in Los Angeles. Let's talk about this hot story here, John, because this is this is really surprising. One bad year after all the good years with the Rams and Sean McVay talking about leaving. That I w- this this was a professional failure. This five and twelve season, his season-ending press conference on Monday wasn't so much about the team and the losses and the injuries that wrecked the franchise. It was almost like it was a therapy session. I was absolutely amazed. And he's talking about lifestyle and hours and commitment and and how he's responsible for so many people. 
I, it, it was really stunning because he wasn't talking football. He was talking about his own personal life and his inability to accept this. Uh, I wrote a column on my website about McVay, and I really like him, and I think he's one of the bright lights in the NFL. He's so bloody intense, and it's football 24-7, 365, and how does that impact his private life? And it goes on and on and on. I'll tell you a quick story. Two Chargers coaches, Marty Schottenheimer and Bobby Ross, told me a story. Marty said the NFL eats you up and then spits you out. This is a guy who had 200 career victories, a bulk of them in Kansas City, and then with the Chargers, really successful, not in postseason, but in regular season. And you get to the finish line, and you would look in his face, and it would be ashen white. It'd be as white as that wall over there at the end of the season because they were just exhausted, and the pressure they put on themselves was Mm -hmm. unbelievable. And do you know the guy that has the phone number for the 28-hour workday so I can call him so I can get four more hours because I know the other coaches are doing the same thing? Marty Marty said it just it just tears you apart. Bobby Ross told me a story. After he had left the Chargers, he went to Detroit Lions, and he was fixing the franchise around Barry Sanders. And they had a big game at midseason. I, I think it was Minnesota, and they beat the Vikings. And the Vikings were coached at that time by Dennis Green, and they were pretty successful. And everybody's enthusiastic. We're making all this progress under Coach Ross. Bobby got on the plane to fly back to Detroit In 15 minutes after he got on the plane, he's fretting about how the hell am I going to start Brett Favre in Green Bay next week? No time to enjoy monstrous victory, a signature to your rebuilding process. No time to enjoy. You got 15 minutes to enjoy, and now you're now you're worried about Brett Favre in Green Bay the next week. That's not a way to live life. So, and we all know the historical uh, stories of Dick Vermeil and burnout. Sean McVay, hell of a guy, hell of a coach. I hate to think he would walk away after after a 5-12 and 12 season because they're going to get everybody back healthy next season. And granted, they don't, they don't have any salary cap space, but healthy players with a year under their belt, with the younger and inexperienced guys, maybe get better. But I'm surprised he'd walk away. Yeah. Have you seen his wife? I mean, she is gorgeous. So maybe there might be some family dynamics going on, not unlike Brady and and Giselle. So maybe they're thinking of starting a family. You know, maybe she wants to have her husband around more. Hey, you take the TV gig. You know, it's a lot lighter schedule. So there could be, yeah, something going on, you know, back home that could be influencing him. And that's why he's having a therapy session in the press conference. it was stunning. Okay, let's talk college football. We got good news and we got sad news, and it's all focal point around USC Trojan football. Uh, Charles White, legendary running back, you know, student body, right, mm. and tailback you, and all the great running backs at Southern Cal. Charles White has passed away at the age of 64. Legendary college football running back in the late 70s. Um, as tough a guy as there was, as fast a guy as there was, as a complete a running back as there was. Went to the NFL uh, with the Rams, played okay, didn't, was, did not have a great career, had some injuries. Uh, I was in Cleveland when he wound up with the Browns, and he was a, just a shell of what he was. And we found out after the fact there was all types of substance problems, etc. but he's passed away of cancer. But in, in the legacy of great running backs at Southern Cal, Anthony Davis, Charles White, Marcus Allen, and Reggie Bush. Mm -hmm. And Reggie Bush, number five, 
uh, has just been named to the College Football Hall of Fame, and rightfully so. He had 3,200 yards in three years. He was kind of the focal point of the dynamics of, of the Trojans under Pete Carroll. Charles White had 6,200 yards rushing in four years at USC. That was a different era, different style of football. Reggie Bush gets to the College Football Hall of Fame. Congrats to him. However, he does not have his Heisman Trophy. He wants it back, and the Heisman Committee says no. Reggie was the centrum of the illegal benefits scandal that took USC's football program down. He was banned from any interaction at USC. They had to return the Heisman Trophy to the Maxwell Club. He has never said, I was wrong, never apologized, never cooperated with the NCAA probe, never gave anything back to USC. You know, they lost 30 scholarships over a four-year span. It was unbelievable. So there's a bit of a tainted reputation. There's no doubt he was a great college athlete because he's from Helix down here. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt he had a really good career, and he's doing a nice job on TV. But his defiance that I did anything wrong, his family took a house and took a car and took all this money from these sleazeball marketing people. Mm -hmm. He he had to know this was going on. NCAA believes he knew it was going on. He refused to testify. Uh, so there's still a little bit of stain around him. But congratulations, one of the great four running backs at Southern Cal going to the Hall of Fame. You remember anything about Charles White running over Stanford, Cal, any of those teams? I mean, I just remember SC, which is so dominant back mm-hmm. then. And was that when Sean McVay's dad was the coach, right? Or grandfather, wasn't it? No, he wasn't. I don't think he was. Jim McVay, wasn't that the guy? John uh, John McVay was. John McVay. John McVay was at the University of Dayton, San Francisco 49ers, New York Giants. Okay, so I'm getting my. um, I was thinking of McKay, McKay. not McVay. John McKay, legendary coach. Yeah. John Robinson, yes. Yeah, that's who I'm thinking about. Um, But yeah, you know, uh, with Charles White, you know, granted he's passing away, it's 64 is young cancer. But anytime an NFL player or, or, you know, college football player dies at a relatively younger age, you always kind of want to learn a little bit more. Now, granted, this wasn't CTE or anything like that. He had dementia. He had dementia. He was in a home, but he had also had a lifestyle off the field that really impacted his health. And they helped him. They brought him back as an assistant coach for a while, and then they had to part ways with him. So it's sad. He, boy, was a hell of a player. Whew. Yeah, I mean, just uh, it's just sad to see that happen. And, you know, maybe it was that dementia that led to some of those off the field, you know, lifestyle choices. Um, as far as Reggie Bush goes, um, he, you know, the guy, yeah, he's having a great career behind the microphone. Um, he was dating Kim Kardashian for a little while, if I recall. But um, it, this just sort of opens up just the whole broader picture of money and the NIL and all the different things in college sports, because, there, there's, they just don't have the right system. They, these things keep happening because there's so much money in the sport, so much money for these players when they eventually get to the NFL that it's hard to completely cut them off of money when they are a college player. So I think the problem with Reggie Bush and the house and the family is really a symptom of a larger problem. But he's trying to hide behind what is going on now, the NIL banner. Mm-hmm. See, you're paying everybody. Well, you, well, the rules when he was at SC right. were a lot different. You had your scholarships and you had your addendum. You can't take stuff on the side. And he and his family did. So he can't invoke the banner from 2022 and put it back 
to the early 2000s and say, see, we should have been treated this way. You can't do that. So that's where we are there. Hey, want to remind you, Fans Forum will be coming up right at the end. John, tell them how they can make statements, ask questions, and understand the rule is have a take, don't suck. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, you can get involved in the Fans Forum. We already got a number of people already getting involved. Just uh, go on the live stream on either Facebook or YouTube. Type in your question or comment for Hacksaw. We'll see it here on the screen. We'll get you involved in the live, st- in the live stream Fans Forum at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. Okay. Let's talk Major League Baseball because the last 24 hours have been pretty active around the Major Leagues and even here in San Diego. Pick a team. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about the Twins and Correa because they finally signed this guy. Only word I can use to describe that guy, mercenary. How does it look? He played for Minnesota last season, had a rock-solid season. They offered him a bunch of money. He said no. He wound up going to the Giants, and Giants said, I don't like the physical exam. In the middle of the night, his agent took him to the New York Mets on another big deal. The Mets looked at it. I don't like the physical exam. Now Carlos Correa goes back to Minnesota as a, quote, hero after snubbing them. And he, he goes back at 50% of what he thought he was getting with the Giants or the New York Mets. This is kind of tacky to me. Good player. No argument there. Signs a six-year, $200 million deal. There are four option years on the back end of the contract if he stays healthy and does not have problems with this deteriorating leg bone issue from an injury in 2014. But to me, it looks bad. He didn't love Minnesota December 1st when free agency started. Now he loves Minnesota now because he's lost all these other contracts. Uh, I just kind of feel weird about talking about this guy and the Minnesota Twins and love you, Minnesota. Didn't love you, though, back when free agents first day started. Your reaction? I think he's happy that he found a place, you know, that someone's going to sign him. Now, he gave up a lot of money. I mean, you know, it's it's from his perspective, he's probably kicking himself. But for Minnesota, you know, they needed another marquee name, you know, to have on their roster. But in some ways, it's sort of like taking back your ex-girlfriend, you know, it's it kind of feels weird, right? Uh, but in the end, I'm just kind of happy for Twins fans because they've got a marquee guy to rally for. Yeah, he's a pretty good player. He's still got time left on the clock. Speaking of needs, the Padres, I think, have spent what was left in their checking account. The Padres add another bat. Now, this is not the bat that he used to be. Not with the Texas Rangers, not with Seattle and even Minnesota, but this guy can probably still ball. And he's going to be surrounded by a really good batting order. Nelson Cruz, who's got a past relationship going back to the early days with the Rangers, with A.J. Preller, signs a one-year contract to come here. Come here, be a DH. Come here, be a part-time first baseman. Come here to guide Fernando Tatis. And I think that's the unwritten storyline as it relates to Cruz. Now, the Padres tried to trade for him last year at the deadline in Minnesota, and he wound up, you know, he wound up going to the Washington Nationals. So uh, it's a good acquisition. His numbers have really tailed off in the last two calendar years. But he's a 274 lifetime hitter, 459 home runs. Uh, he, had a, he had a six-year stretch where he hit 244 bombs. And I think surrounded by this really good batting order, He's going to get good pitches to hit, and I think he's going to he's going to hit some out, and maybe he'll hit for some average too. So I like the acquisition; they got him on a one year, one million dollar deal. 
I mean, a million bucks is cheap, isn't it? Yeah, for now it is. Yeah. So th- this is like a all upside deal. And I, I, to your point, I like how he can be the mentor for Tatis. Apparently Machado loves this guy. And, you know, they're trying to stroke Machado so they can, you know, he's got the opt out at the end of the year next year. Um, but uh, I, I just, I like the signing overall. I know Padres Twitter was all fired up for this signing. They were, they, everyone, all the fans love this deal. Yeah. And uh, late on Wednesday night, they also re-signed Craig Stammen, the, the workhorse long reliever. So he comes back to be part of what I think is a pretty good bullpen. I, I, I'm amazed at what they've done. You look on paper at the roster, you know, and we're a month out from going to spring training, John. This is a really good team. Payroll, though, payroll's at $267 million. Yeah, so they're, they're over the second threshold of luxury tax. I mean, they're paying a phenomenal amount of money on this roster. Okay, from the Padres, let's go north. Dodger Stadium. A lot of deals in about a 12-hour span. That guy's gone. Trevor Bauer. They had a week to try to find somebody to trade him to. Evidently, they did not get any offers. No phone calls returned. Trevor Bauer has now been released. He's on a street corner near you with a sandwich board that says pitcher for hire. Uh, It's a sad commentary about him. He's 83 and 59. He went eight and five with a two point three nine ERA with the Dodgers in twenty twenty one before the suspension. The guy, the guy collected a phenomenal amount of money. Uh, by the time we get to the finish line, he will have made off the Dodgers sixty seven million dollars to go eight and five because he was paid for that first half of the season. Then he was paid on the administrative leave part when he was off the roster. And the Dodgers have to pay him $22 million this year, regardless of where he goes and who he plays. Now, he did lose $37 million because of the extended suspension. Uh, absolutely amazing. I don't know if anybody touches him or not. There, there's a whole toxic mentality about who he is and all the junk he's continued to get himself involved in. Uh, the other Dodger deal, this is kind of unique. They made a trade with Miami. And they got Miguel Rojas, the all-star gold glove shortstop. Now, he's got a lot of miles on him. He's age 34. But what it does is probably buys him a couple of years at shortstop while they make a determination how good Gavin Lux can be if Lux has to be the shortstop of the future or if there's somebody else out there a year from now they might want to go get in free agency. Uh, Rojas, 264 career hitter, has won a couple of three gold gloves. Glue guy, good clubhouse guy. Uh, so they got him from Miami for a double-A shortstop that didn't fit into their plans. So your response on Bauer, your response on the new shortstop from Miami. Well, the Dodgers did the right thing in letting Bauer go. So I've been supportive of that from the start. Um, now, the question is, is who's going to pick him up? Because they'll get him on the cheap, right? They'll just have to pay the major league minimum. I still think he's going to find a, a place on a team somewhere, especially for a team that's contending, that's looking for that missing piece. Um, and as far as the Rojas deal goes, it's curious how the Dodgers in previous years were just busting out their checkbook and writing big money and signing everybody. This year, they've been very sort of quiet, calculating, moving. You know, there's been smaller deals, smaller signings, getting below that that payroll tax level. Um, so it'll be curious to see how they perform this year. Um, you know, especially going against that Padre lineup. Now, understand this: by virtue of taking on Rojas's contract from Miami, 
the Dodgers have gone over the luxury tax threshold again. Oh. Now, they still have time. They can rid themselves of another player with with a, a paycheck to get underneath it. They want to get underneath it so there's no penalties. Because I guarantee you, next November, you and I are still doing this podcast. <laughs> we'll be talking Shohei Otani and the Dodgers, the ones are going to bid oh, yeah. the big, big time money for him. So there's a method to their madness to get below the luxury tax threshold. But by getting Miguel Rojas from Miami on Wednesday night, they bumped above it. But they can always move a player off their roster to get below it again. So that's where we are. Final topic on the table. You're going to corner kick this one in here? Yeah. I mean, we're still fired up from the World Cup. I mean, it was a great event. And so we're now kind of feeling a lot more connected to the U.S. soccer team. And now we're following these players in the Premier League. And there's been a lot of development. Uh, Greg Berhalter still does not have a contract. Greg Berhalter's in the middle of this investigation for this, quote, 31-year-old domestic abuse case. His players this week stood up and sound off. This guy is the reason we got to group play. This is the reason we got to the knockout round. The players have gone public telling the U.S. Soccer Federation, give him a new contract. We want him back. And it it really begs the issue. Should he be held responsible in terms of losing his position for something that happened 31 years ago? The players say no because he apologized, because he went to counseling all this while I was at the University of North Carolina. And by the way, he married the woman who was a victim of the one-time domestic abuse incident. They have four kids and are still married. Mm-hmm. So that the Burhalter story is unresolved, but now the players are stepping front and center and said, this is the guy. Tough, tough week uh, in Chelsea in the English Premier League. Christian Pulisic got hurt got badly hurt playing against Manchester City. Vicious tackle by English star John Stones, sprained a knee, going to be out at least two months. This has all types of implications. Not only was it a hard tackle, it was not a yellow card or a red card. Stones went for the ball. I saw the video. He got the ball, and then he got Pulisic at the same time. Um, Christian was about to be moved from Chelsea and maybe a transfer deal to Newcastle United would have been a huge money deal. That might be off the table right now. And it's just another injury that's impacting him. And on top of that, Chelsea is is about to fall face first on the, on the pitch. They, they lost Pierre Aubameyang with a back injury. He's another goal scorer. And they lost their third goal scorer, Raheem Sterling. He's got a hamstring injury. It's not healed. Suddenly, Chelsea's down three stars, three name goal scorers. You can't go on any street corner in London and find guys to replace them. A devastating story there. A real tough setback for Pulisic. And it was just a, a hard tackle soccer play. But boy, he, he just can't get away from the injuries. He's had all kinds of nagging stuff since he went to Chelsea. And now this this is a more significant injury. Yeah, I mean, I think as, as American soccer fans, we want to see our guys shine at the highest level. And this was the our chance, you know, to really be able to, to say America has soccer talent. Um, so it is a shame that he went down. I know Stones is, he's like one of the top, you know, defensive backs yeah. in all of the Premier League. He was on the, um, the English World Cup team. So, um, yeah, I, I would, when they were talking originally about, you know, this, it's weird how they do it in the Premier League. They, they loan players and it's not like a trade. It's like, it's a loan, but they were going to move Pulisic to another team and that would have maybe put him in the starting lineup. And now, yeah, we may not see that. Well, it's not a loan, John. John, it's a transfer fee 
$270 million. Some of the numbers, some of the numbers that transfer a player like Cristiano Ronaldo, mm-hmm. who got tossed out of Manchester United, has just signed to play in Saudi Arabia, like a $275 million transfer package. So not a trade for number one draft picks. It's write a check. It's a purchase. <laughs> okay, time for Fans Forum. What do we got lined up here? Who's got questions? We might have some good answers and it kind of looks like somebody here wants to probably apply to co-host the show with us. Go ahead, <laughs> John. Pick a pick a question. Okay, so we got a, good, a couple of good ones here. So uh, let's do that and that. And let's go here to um, the SG Sports Talk channel. Raheem Morris would be a great replacement for the L.A. Rams if Sean McVay left the organization. Not a bad call. Uh, Morris has kind of reconstructed his resume after his first failed attempt as a head coach. Uh, bright guy. Uh, laid back, not not a flamethrower in terms of great speeches and all that. Uh, Going to interview at least three different places that I know of. Uh, if McVeigh were to exit, here's the big question. If Sean McVeigh were to walk away from the NFL, you mean to tell me in L.A., Rams fan, you would not want to hire, take a run at Sean Payton? Mm. Think, think about that. I think Payton goes to the front of everybody's list, and Payton is going to pick and choose you know, Peyton can say, I want to go work for the Walmart family and the Denver Broncos because they got wealth, they got resources. And then, you know, or I might go to Arizona because they're going to give me total control of the whole building. But I'll tell you what, L.A., L.A.'s got players. L.A.'s got big-time ownership commitments. So I don't think he can rule. I don't think he can rule Sean Payton out of Los Angeles. I mean, as long as McVeigh is dragging his feet— that kind of creates a difficult thing for the Rams if they are if they would like to see Peyton as the replacement. So hopefully McVeigh makes a decision quickly. Yeah, and again, Peyton going in is going to want to be able to go in early because he wants to go in and evaluate what he's seen on this roster and evaluate what I'm going to do with my draft picks. So you're going to give me the power to mm-hmm. make that decision. Next question: Where are we going? Okay, so this is a this is a Padre question from Steve Grudenwald. Hello, the Padres have a collection hoping to fill the back end of the rotation. However, they never mention Michelle Baez. Well, what is the expectation for him? Do you guys view him as a sleeper? Thanks. Well, he's still got options left, and because he has options left, that means he's probably more an El Paso guy to start until somebody gets hurt. Uh, you know, they've had a whole cadre of young arms, all who had options, and a whole bunch of them got hurt, and it's a big issue. I think Baez is right there as maybe first guy to get called if he doesn't make the opening day roster. Uh, I think the other other name that we have to really pay attention to is what happens with Ryan Weathers, because he really took a step back, and he had had some health issues, and they had mechanical issues, and if they can get him back to where he was two years ago and say, wow, bright young light, here he is, he's ready to pitch, but that's all to be proven by the time they get to the cactus thing. But Baez, Baez is in the mix. If you go down, if you Google the Padres 40-man roster, they got a lot of veteran pitchers, and they got a bunch of guys at the back end. Not all can make the major league roster, but those are really good insurance policy guys. You just have to get them ready, have to keep them healthy. Yeah, it seems like Baez was one of the star signings, you know, when they had a, those international uh, drafts. Um, he's like 6'7", a real tall guy. But I think they're they're slotting him more as like a middle relief guy rather than a starter. That's how it's going to probably sort out for him. Yeah, it's interesting because the Padres right now are really deep in starting pitching, and the back end of the rotation was a big issue. But you know they've really 
They've really loaded the bullpen, too. And we still have a Drew Pomerantz sighting to be made. Can he ever get healthy? He's got one more year to go on a contract. He's gotten an awful lot of free money for not a lot of contributions. So you've got to throw Pomerantz's name into the front of that bullpen with Josh Hader. And then obviously what what they got uh, with Suarez from Japan. And they, they, look, they look so good. They look so deep. Is it? Time to say play ball. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be <laughs> terrific. I mean, Yanervis, y- y- Solarte, I mean, all these old Padre teams, we've got something to be really excited about. It's going to be a great year. On we go. We've got another question here in fans' forum. Yeah, we do. This is kind of a long one here from Michael Darling. He says, there is no doubt that Bauer pitches for someone this year, a contender with the burning desire to win it all and in need of starting pitching, and he gets to choose a spot. I'm in favor of my Padres doing the dirty deal and throw them at the Dodgers three or four times this year. Look, there are plenty of not-so-good guys on rosters. This guy's dirty laundry became public. I say second chance with a zero tolerance. Well, I concur to a degree. But if that were the case, then the Dodgers should have retained him because the Dodgers are shy of starting pitching. But... This is the same Dodger team that refused to deal with Carlos Correa when he was a free agent because of the sign-stealing scandal. So at least they're consistent with their philosophy of who they want wearing uh, the Dodger logo. Uh, I don't know that Peter Seidler would go in that direction. I do believe that Houston and Texas, I've been told, are going to make a run at, at Trevor Bauer. You know, I went back and I looked I looked at some of the quotes from his initial Dodger press conference because when he got picked up by the Dodgers, there was a trail of stuff behind him about what junk he had done on social media about lesbians and women and transgender people, just really mm-hmm. off-the-cuff, off down-in-the-gutter type comments. And he made the comment because he was asked at the opening press conference at Dodger Stadium— he was asked the comment about your past and the way you've acted in Cleveland and Cincinnati and what he did on social media. Uh, and he said, I hope to have learned from all my mistakes and I'm going to represent this organization. So you take that from his opening press conference in the sunshine on the podium at Dodger Stadium and fast forward it to the sexual misconduct case and rough sex and all that junk. Uh, so he never, to me, he never learned anything. But you are correct in your assessment. <laughs> Somebody will probably give him a chance at the minimum salary. And I heard Houston and Texas at the front of the line. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope it's Houston and not Texas because it'll give us another reason to to hate on Houston. <laughs> and, you know, we have Bochi in Texas and we're kind of slightly rooting for him to be successful. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, like you were lobbying for a second chance for him with the Dodgers. And I get that. I mean, we we, you know, this nation is all about, you know, hopefully forgiveness, um, but uh, not with the Padres. No siree. Okay. You got anybody else who's got a good question? I'm going to throw a fastball here, hit a three-point shot, throw a touchdown pass. We do. On a fans forum, take one more. Okay. We got one more here, and this is uh, from the YouTube comments. And, uh, you know, this is from the fans forum. We were talking about Kyler Murray, remember, not really reading the playbook and all of that. And uh, Fat Albert you know, commented on our YouTube channel, Tom Brady worked harder on improvement than anyone I can think of. You look at what's on that Tampa Bay roster. And you say, how in the world are they in the playoffs? With no running game, he lost virtually all of his offensive linemen. He didn't have the full complement of wide receivers till the back half of the schedule. And like I said, he only took 22 sacks and 733 pass attempts. So that's all on him, reading defenses, making decisions, getting the ball out. 
Tom's not had a good week. I don't know if this story is out there really in public. FTX, cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you didn't have any money in that, did you, Joe? No. <laughs> Thank goodness. Tom Brady owned 1.1 million shares of FTX. Whoa. His wife, X, owned 668,000 shares. Combined total lost investment, $45 million. Tom's wow. not had a good week. No. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's that's something else. I mean, I think I, th- it was interesting with FTX. Remember the umpires had the uh, was uh, a lo- a sponsor logo. Yeah, because for a while I was wondering, like, who in the heck is FTX when I'd see it every night on TV? Um, but they also had a lot of other celebrity endorsements. And I oh, think yes. Tom Brady was one of those guys. He was the biggest. The biggest. But, you know, back to Fat Albert's point. Yeah, Tom Brady is you know, a student of the game and really brought his game up because, you know, the expectations of him coming out of Michigan were very modest and look what he's become. And then you see guys like Kyler Murray that, you know, have all the talent, but just can't, you know, add, you know, that extra level, that secret sauce, that, you know, that brain power to really make them work. Hey, thank you for joining us on Fans Forum. And again, we hope you'll join us by uh, signing on to get the alerts uh, for our Hacksaw Headlines, uh, Headlines podcast. We're here every Thursday. We also post stuff Monday through Friday on our podcast, too. And I'll invite you again. Please go to my website. It's all written. If you like my talk show, you'll love it. If you didn't like my talk show, you can still read what I write. It's <laughs> LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Hey, thanks for being with us. Enjoy Wild Card Weekend, John. We'll catch you next week. Thanks again for joining us, too, on our podcast. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.